Welcome to the second installment of the PK Experience, the nearly worldwide famous podcast by yours truly, Mr. Peter King. In this audio, this interview, I am interviewing Dr. Robert Glover, who is the author of a book called No More Mr. Nice Guy. So when a lot of people hear that term, no more Mr. Nice Guy, they think, you know, what's wrong with being a nice guy? Nice guy sounds pretty nice. But the way that the author, Dr. Glover, uses the term, the nice guy is the guy that is always placating. He's always seeking the yes. He's always trying to get validation and approval from others, his wife, his girlfriend, his parents, his children, his boss. And so these nice guys go around with what they think is, you know, a genuine intention of trying to do nice things. But what they're not really aware of is the underlying subconscious need for approval, for significance, for validation. And what happens is it just, it really destroys, it destroys marriages, it destroys relationships, it destroys uh, potential. And so these men are not really living their lives with backbone. And um, Dr. Glover wrote this book. I came across it. Somebody had referred it to me. I checked it out. I realized that I had a lot of nice guy tendencies that just weren't really serving me. And quite frankly, it wasn't serving the people in my life either. It was affecting my then wife. It was affecting my children. And there's a call for real masculinity to have, yes, have that heart, that nice heart, but also a backbone um, to be able to draw boundaries, to be able to uh, step up and achieve and to create and to live life with purpose and joy. So this interview is with Dr. Robert Glover. And I have to sort of mention that I did a horrible job of recording the actual audio. It was the first time I was using a stand alone microphone. As I'm having the interview, it didn't realize, I didn't, it didn't occur to me that as I was moving, sitting back in my chair, I was moving away from the microphone. And so the audio might be a little bit messed up. Hopefully not too much because I'm getting some help on that. But anyway, please enjoy this interview. I'd love to hear what your thoughts are on it. So without further ado, no more Mr. Nice Guy. Here it is. I am here with Dr. Robert Glover. He is the author of No More Mr. Nice Guy, and he is also a licensed marriage and family therapist, and he's helped thousands of men worldwide help, help them with what he calls the nice guy syndrome. And I've actually personally read the book and got a lot of insight out of it. It revealed a lot of blind spots in my own personal experience. So thank you very much for that. But when I go to actually refer the book to other people, to men and sometimes to women who have relationships with nice guys, they, I, I sometimes get some pushback with the whole idea of a nice guy. It almost sounds like we're advocating for being a jerk. So if you're not being a nice guy, you know, what does that actually mean? So maybe you could just spend few seconds here describing and uh, defining what you mean by nice guy. All right, Peter, good to be with you and good to, good to have a chance to talk with you about No More Mr. Nice Guy. Uh, you know, I guess the, 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 the elevator speech of what a nice guy is, is a man who typically at some unconscious or unconscious level doesn't believe he's good enough just the way he is, and he has to have other people's approval in order to be liked and loved. Typically, he tends to um, sacrifice his own wants and needs and typically gives to other people and makes their needs a higher priority than his own. And often those people walk on him or treat him bad or misuse him. And all the while, he kind of waits for people to treat him better and recognize his needs and like him. But then one of the things I say in No More Mr. Nice Guy is that nice guys are actually fundamentally not very nice for a few reasons. One is that he's not being his true self, so he's actually not being honest with you. Most nice guys will say or do whatever they think they have to to have other people's approval or to avoid conflict. But another very significant way is that nice guys often are not nice is that as we're giving to everybody else and using what I call covert contracts, and a covert contract is simply, in my mind, I think, well, if I do this for you, then you'll do X, Y, or Z for me. You know, if I hold the door open for you, then you will appreciate me, think I'm a good person, and like me. Well, when we use these covert contracts, we are usually not aware of the covert contract, and nobody else is aware of it at all. They don't know that we have expectations, either that they acknowledge what we've done, or they do something in return for us, or they appreciate us, or love us, or want to have sex with us. 
So when we do all this giving to get, and other people don't respond in the ways we think they should, we tend to start building up resentment. And that resentment builds over time. We keep feeding it. And then eventually, one of two things happens. We either become passive-aggressive. We either kind of lash out at people in indirect ways that they don't see coming. Or a typical nice guy thing is to have what I call a victim puke, where everything that's been storing up all these times just comes, some little thing happens, and you just vomit all over the person. And they're going, what just happened here? And, and they didn't see it coming. So as I said, the problem with nice guys is we're often not nice. But the bigger problem is we often don't live up to our full potential. We don't have the kind of relationships we want. We don't have the kind of great life we want. Because we're so busy kind of licking our finger and holding it up in the air and seeing which way the wind's blowing, that we don't get up every day and just say, what do I want? And then go about living our life in a way that makes us happy. You had mentioned that nice guys have this covert contract and that they often may do something with the anticipation of getting something in return and that other people aren't fully aware of that. Do you find also that there are times where the quote-unquote nice guy also is not aware of it? In, in other words, that it's happening on a subconscious level? I, I, that's a good question. And I would say, yes, that most often that is the case. And, and in, in the book, No More Mr. Nice Guy, I spell out the three basic covert contracts that most nice guys use. Covert contract number one is that if I'm a good person, then everybody will like me and love me. Now, of course, we're the one that's defining what a good person is. And we can often extend that to our relationships. If you're straight, heterosexual. Well, if I'm a good person, then women will like me and love me and want to have sex with me. Or if you're gay, vice versa for other men. Covert contract number two, that if I anticipate everybody else's needs before they do, then they will anticipate my needs and give to me. And then covert contract number three, if I do everything right, or at least hide any mistakes that I make, then I'll have a smooth, problem-free life. Now, I would say, in general, most nice guys are not aware of their covert contracts. I wasn't aware of my own until I started going to therapy several years ago because I couldn't understand why my wife at that time didn't respond better to me being a nice guy. I treated her well. I was raising her kids, my stepkids. I, I tried to do everything to please her when she was in a bad mood. I'd try to fix it. I, did, I avoided everything that might rock the boat, but yet she was never happy. It was never good enough. She never wanted to have sex with me. So it reached the point where I started getting so passive aggressive and having so many victim pukes. She said, you go to therapy. I can't live with this anymore. So I went to therapy to try to figure out why my, me being a nice guy didn't make her treat me better. And that's when I began to realize, find out I had these covert contracts, these expectations, that if I was just you know the best man she'd ever been with in her life, then she would, of course overwhelmingly love me, treat me well, want to have sex with me, and life would be smooth and problem-free. Now, when you start realizing you have these covert contracts, you realize a few things. Number one, they don't work. Number two, they're kind of childlike. Number three, they don't reflect the, the real world. And number four, other people don't know they're out there. And it requires you to start being a better communicator, taking more responsibility for your own needs and wants, having better boundaries with people, learning how where you have a tendency to caretake and fix, to try to um, make your relationship smooth or make people like you or get them over their problems so your world gets back to copacetic. So yeah, becoming aware of your covert contracts is one of those big ahas that a lot of men have when they read the book. All of a sudden, they go, oh man, I get it now. I get everything I do is pretty much measured to get something back in return. Yes. So the other funny look I get sometimes when I tell people about this idea of no more Mr. Nice Guy is first, obviously, that what do you mean, you know, again, are you advocating for being a jerk? No, of course <laughs> we're not. So if we're not advocating being a jerk, really, from what I understand in reading your book, you're actually taking the nice guy part of you and you're carrying it forward. You're just adding something to it. It's, would that be accurate? Well, actually, maybe just the opposite of it. Maybe maybe that's you're you're you're, you're taking the, the the yeah exactly that's what you meant. Um, well, l let me address first of all the point about even just the title of the premise. Um, there was a little bit of consciousness that went into this when I actually started recognizing other men thought just like I did and were co-creating the same things I was creating in my relationship. I I'm a, a marriage and family therapist by training, 
And so couples would be coming to see me and the guys were saying the same thing I was. I'm a good guy. I treat her well. I treat her better than her ex. I always do stuff for her. It's never good enough. She's never happy. She never wants to have sex. She's angry all the time. When's it going to be my turn? Blah, 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 blah. And I thought, man, I, I can finish these guys' sentences for them. So I started, this was probably 20 years ago, started my first No More Mr. Nice Guy men's group. And we met every other week. Every other week, I, I, I started writing chapters or lessons to give to these guys about what I was finding out about nice guy. And it just seemed to fit. You know, no more Mr. Nice Guy just seemed to fit. But the kind of the, the, the paradoxical part of the title is that everybody's probably at some point in their life said, no more Mr. Nice Guy. You know, I've, I've, I've had enough. I'm standing up for myself or whatever. But at the same time, you could also ask the question, well, why would anybody write a book training men to be not nice? You must be training them to be jerks. So the, the paradox of the title actually... I think is good because it gets people's attention. And ironically, and to answer your question a little bit in advance, no, I'm not teaching men to be jerks or assholes. And ironically, many, many men who write to me, email me and say, you know, I've read your book. It's great. Many of them were turned on to my book by a woman, a wife, a girlfriend, a female therapist. I can't tell you how many men have told me their ex-wife or ex-girlfriend turned them on to the book. So women seem to love the book. And, and probably the book's been out now, came out in 02, 03. Probably in all that time, I've gotten a total maybe of three or four hostile letters, emails of people saying, you know, you're a jerk, you're this, you're that, you're teaching. And, and the ones that wrote me the letters, I can tell they didn't read the book. I was going to say, I'm sure they didn't read it. And so, yeah, w- the, you'd think women would be the ones who would be most offensive about, well, why are you teaching men to be not nice? Well, women love the book because I'm teaching men to be honest, to have integrity to set the tone and take the lead in their own life and, and invite their partner to join them in that process and yeah. to be a what-you-see-is-what-you-get kind of guy. So, no, I'm not teaching men, of course, to, to be jerks. What I am trying to help men do is, number one, be them. Be themselves. Ask themselves, what do I want? What makes me happy? Where do I want to go? How, how do I want to live my life? And by asking that question, you create a state of what's called differentiation, or we could call that integrity. Because if you never ask yourself, what do you want? Or if you ask yourself that and then don't do it, you're not differentiated. You're not living in integrity. Actually, you're being very childlike. So I'm, I'm teaching men how to grow up by asking themselves the question, what do I want? What's important to me? What would make me happy? And then finding support systems and, and the courage and whatever else they need to follow through on those things that are most important to them. So as a result, they become men of high integrity. They become men of high honesty. They become a what you see is what you get kind of guy. And you either like, you know, so, so Peter, if you're living your life on your terms the way you want, people that meet you, they're either going to like you or they won't. But it doesn't matter. The ones who like you want to hang around with you. and The ones who don't, will probably just pass on by and not even really notice you. But that, that attracts people to you that like the you that you are. And not everybody's going to like you, just as you said. But find out who does by being you. So yeah, I'm teaching men to act on the integrity of being exactly who they are, being visible in that way, being verbal in that way, and just letting people know, this is me. This is what I want. This is where I'm going. How are you finding these men? As I've come to better understand this, and I'm in the practice of coaching and doing sort of thing as well, men are typically not as in touch with their feelings, or if they are, they're not outwardly expressing that. They're not necessarily searching for it, in my small experience. So how are you finding those men? And if somebody who's listening to this, how would they you know, know that they are, quote unquote, a nice guy? And where could they possibly go in addition to your No More Mr. Nice Guy book? Well, if they're listening to this and they're, they're probably either nodding their head or going, no, that's not me. And I found that most nice guys that would actually listen to your kind of podcast, most men who would listen to your kind of podcast probably already do have some nice guy tendencies. And one thing about nice guys is we all want to be better guys. I mean, we're always trying to get better so that people will like us better. And, and, and there's kind of a paradox that a lot of times guys start working with me and they read the book and find out about covert contracts. And, and after a while they go, yeah, I get that my old covert contracts didn't work. It didn't make people like me. didn't get my needs met. It didn't create a smooth, problem-free life. So I want to get rid of all that. I want to break free from nice guy syndrome. So then 
people will like me and I can get my needs met, have a smooth problem-free life. So when I started trying to market No More Mr. Nice Guy and find an agent, find a publisher, thank goodness for the world of the internet because I, I, I got some good breaks where I started getting some visibility with what I was doing. I was beating some bushes, but some of it started coming to me. I got an agent and he really liked my book and he's a very, very successful uh, New York agent. And but we started shopping the book to major publishers. The report we got back was, oh, we love your book. It's well-written. We like it. But our marketing department says men will not buy a self-help book. And especially men will not buy a self-help book that tells them that they're losers. And I said, you don't get the men that I work with. And we kept plugging away at it. And then uh, after some more visibility with some major networks, uh, Barnes & Noble decided to pick it up and publish it. And that was, like I said, 12, 13 years ago. And my royalty checks keep getting bigger every year. So that means that more and more men are finding it and it it has struck a nerve. So really, thank goodness for the Internet, because my website, drglover.com, where people can find my online university, they can get other materials, podcasts, things that I record. But I think most people find me either because a friend or a therapist tells them about the book. A lot of people find it by listening to podcasts like yours or going to online chat rooms where guys are either working on issues around pornography or codependency or 12-step recovery. So it's really kind of taken a grassroots path through the whole big recovery community out there. And a lot of people that are in some kind of recovery or another do tend to go to the internet to, to find information. So it comes to me, the book's been translated, I don't know, probably into eight or 10 languages now. It's got a real worldwide presence and it just, it seems to just keep growing every year. So apparently there's a lot of men across all cultures because I'm, I grew up in America. I actually live in Mexico now most of the year. I grew up during this era where, you know, a lot of mothers were training their sons to be different than their fathers. And that's what my mother did. But I've also found that Asian cultures, Indian cultures, a lot of worldwide cultures are producing a lot of nice guys. So they're out there and it's worldwide. Wow, that's fascinating. I was, yeah, I was going to actually ask you about, about that globally. That's very interesting. The last couple of years, I've been kind of, I've been going to just tons of workshops and seminars across the country. And as I've come to better understand the whole idea behind nice guys, I mean, it's rampant. And you mentioned before, that women often refer to the book. Mm-hmm. I have found that women are desperately screaming for their men to grow up, for their boys rather to grow up. And really the whole nice guy thing is that, yes, you have a boy that's in charge uh, as opposed to a man. Mm-hmm. And what you just mentioned about <laughs> growing up and having a mother be the authority figure perhaps in your life I mean, you, you touch on this in the first part of your book, but I, I find it very fascinating to sort of lay the landscape. Can you speak to how we got to this stage where on a global level we have almost this epidemic of nice guy syndrome-ness? Well, I, I talk some about that in the book, as you mentioned, and that I finished writing it over 15 years ago, and I've continued to observe the process of nice guys. And I think you could probably a lot of factors go into it. I grew up during, uh, um, I was in junior high and high school during the 60s and 70s. So you had women's liberation. I grew up hearing a lot of angry feminists blame men for all the problems in the world. My mother trained me to be different from my father, to not be the, the self-centered, everything should revolve around me kind of guy. So a lot of stuff is going on in America in, in my generation. One example I give is that I ask often in groups of nice guys, how, how many male teachers did you have? from kindergarten until you started junior high. And the average is about one, one and a half in in groups of guys. Some never had a man teacher. So one of the things, for example, I say is that the average third grade male, not only having to sit in his seat and listen and be still, and a lot of schools now with testing, they've gotten rid of recess. That's the only reason I went to school for recess and PE and lunch. And I was a typical boy. And so now the typical boy not only has to learn to read and write and do his arithmetic to get from third grade to fourth grade, but he has to learn how to please a woman. He's got to figure out what do I have to do to make this woman teacher happy just to to move forward. And often it has very little to do with how he performs in the classroom is how he negotiates that world of having women authority around him. And I think you add to that in a lot of cultures now, a lot of boys are being raised by single mothers. 
And I've had a lot of single moms say, help me. I can't be the father and the mother to my son. And, and the mothers will tell me, I get that because as a woman, me raising my son, I've taught him to be soft or passive or afraid. And what can I do? What can I do? And one of the things actually I, I plan to do is, is to put together maybe a graphic novel based on No More Mr. Nice Guy and some of my dating principles for young adult males and teenage men. Because there is just such an empty place out there for young men to get good information about what it means to be male, what it means to be a man in our culture. Yeah. I think you add to that, most cultures have lost whatever rituals they had at one time for the older men initiating the boys into kind of the dangerous, scary world of the masculine. Most cultures are, are losing that. And again, often in the Asian and Indian cultures, there's so much emphasis on being perfect that a lot of boys are growing up thinking, I got to be perfect. I got to do everything right. And a lot of times in these cultures, the women are very dominant in the family. They kind of give lip service to the men being in charge, but the women run the show. And then and these boys grow up, again, trying to figure out how to please women. And then one other piece I've seen, like I said, I live here in Mexico, where it's still very much a very um, macho culture and and where, you know, the 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 boys are raised to be special by their mothers and even their sisters wait on them and they grow up thinking that all women are there to serve them and please them. It's very macho. But I've also found anytime you have a macho culture, for a boy to be anything different other than that macho, the world revolves around me, I can use women in whatever way I want, they often have to go to 180 degrees to the other extreme of being the nice guy, of being that passively pleasing male. So even here in Mexico, you can see a lot of these young men just tagging along like puppies with their girlfriends, you know, trying to be the nice guy and please them. So even a macho culture can turn out a, a lot of nice guys. Yeah, that's interesting. Do you find that there are nice guys that don't go to the passive side, but they go to more an aggressive, angry side and, and still don't get their needs met, but they handle it in a different way? It, what different types of categories of nice guys have you seen pattern-wise across all the men you've worked with? Well, I'll just have to say up front, you know, no, no two men are alike in how they interpret the world or how their paradigm guides them. But it is spooky to see how alike so many men can be in just the way they, they think in their paradigm. And it was, a, it was really a big insight to me when I realized there were other guys out there just like me. I thought I was the only one following this paradigm. And I was actually consciously thinking, well, if I just try to be good to everybody, why doesn't everybody try to be that way? And it wasn't just being good. I, I hid everything I thought anybody would have a negative reaction to, whether it's a mistake I made or a thought or a feeling that I had or something I wanted to do. But in the book, I talk about two types of nice guys. The first is me. I, I call it the I'm so good nice guy. And at first, I thought all nice guys, as I saw it, fit that category. These are the guys who really do think we do everything right. And everything we do that's either messed up or, you know, a mistake or we don't want people to know about. We just tuck away in nice little compartments back in the back of our psyche. And we really do think, hey, I've got this bank account built where I do so many good things for so many people. I'm such a good guy and I don't do terrible things, I, you know, that everybody should just like me and I should get a credit. Nobody should ever get mad at me if I do happen to mess something up. That's the I'm so good nice guy. Now, actually, we're really pretty dangerous because we are so oblivious to our dark side, to the things that we even hide from our own consciousness, that it comes out in, in really not very nice ways. And it can come out at times in those anger outbursts, the victim pukes, the passive aggressiveness. I was married when I wrote No More Mr. Nice Guy, and my ex used to tell me, she said, I'd rather be with a jerk. I'd rather be with an asshole because at least a jerk... They're consistent. You know they're going to be a jerk to you. But she said, you'd be so nice to me all the time, and I think everything's fine. I don't know anything's bothering you. And then all of a sudden, out of sudden, out of the blue, in public, you do something that really hurts me or embarrasses me or puts me down. And she goes, I, I don't like all those little surprise daggers in my back. And she was right. Nice guys, especially the I'm so good nice guy, often, again, as I said earlier, are not that nice. Now, I, 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 to answer your question, I rarely find what I call nice guys out there raging a lot because usually that makes us feel so bad about ourselves. So we try to repress that and put it back down again because most nice guys think it's bad to have too much anger. But then the second kind of nice guy is what I call the I'm so bad nice guy. 
And this is the guy, when I first wrote the book, my perception was, well, maybe he'd acted out as a teenager, young adult, maybe went through drugs or alcohol or rebellious phase and came away thinking, I'm a bad guy. But maybe if I work really hard to be a good guy, people will see that and like me. Um, But these guys live in a constant fear that everybody will eventually see how bad they really are. Now, what I've now come to understand about these men is they, many of them have what I call a ruminating brain, where their brain is spending 24-7 focusing on past mistakes or perceived mistakes, missed opportunities, regrets. They're comparing and measuring themselves against other people, often finding fault with themselves, often looking to the future, believing no matter what they do, it'll probably not work out well, and anticipating failure, anticipating the other shoe falling. So their brain spins with this stuff all the time. And they tend to feel pretty negative about themselves all the time. And they assume if they let anybody get close to them, they'll see that same neg- those same negative traits. These men might have more of, of the mood disturbances up and down just because their brain keeps them agitated so much of the time. But usually one of the things you'll first see about nice guys and you'll first start noticing is how passive they are that they don't tend to stand up for themselves. They don't tend to lash out. If they do do something a little bit harsh, they're apologizing profusely for it afterwards. So to answer your question in general, you'll see the occasional victim puke from a nice guy, but usually they're not walking around with a lot of rage. And if they are, they're doing their best to keep a lid on that because it makes them feel like such a bad person. You mentioned a minute ago about a divorce. And can you speak a little bit to some of the cost that these men face if they don't address, you know, meeting their needs. Um, what, what are the different costs that you've seen that are destructive in, in these men's lives? Well, that's a good question. I can speak personally to it because I, I was, if you had looked up nice guy in the dictionary 25 years ago, you would have seen my pictures, the poster child nice guy. I truly was trying to please everybody, make everybody happy. I thought I was an honest guy. I never told the whole truth. I hid things. I left things out. I misdirected information so people might not be upset at me. In relationship, I was always asking my partner, well, what do you want to do? Where do you want to go? What do you want for dinner? I, was, I would never make a decision and say, let's go do this. The, the, the Kind of the ironic thing is, yesterday, well, actually about a week or so ago, my ex-wife, who I was married to when I wrote No More Mr. Nice Guy, we were married for 14 years. We had all kinds of difficulties, but also had a lot of good things. But we've been divorced now 12, 13 years. About a week ago, she contacted me and said, I'm going to be in Puerto Vallarta. Would you like to have coffee? And I'm thinking, okay, we've talked like a total of three times maybe since our divorce. And we had coffee yesterday. And, and both of us are in a really good place. And both realized we bumbled our way through the relationship. We both went to a lot of therapy during that time. We, as I said, we brought out the worst in each other, but we also brought out the best in each other. But... As I was talking with her, I, I, I told her, I said, I, I would not have wanted to live with me. I was passive aggressive. I never asked for what I wanted. I gave to get. I wasn't a good receiver. So when she did try to give to me, I'd usually not let her. I rarely told the truth if I thought it, would go, it was going to upset her. Everything I did had an agenda. And, and I wouldn't set the tone or lead. I left all the decisions up to her. And this was especially early on. That began to change as I started doing recovery and working on myself. But then after I got out there in the dating world and actually dated some nice girls, I, it was like looking in the mirror of, of how crazy I must have made you know, my previous two wives when they couldn't trust with 100% everything I said. I wouldn't actually ever say what I really wanted. And I got with some girls like that who are, who are nice women. But I realized I really couldn't trust them because they never told me what they really thought, what they really felt, what they really wanted. They would never make a decision. They would never, you know, and, and I thought, oh, my goodness, this is what I was like. Yeah. So in the book, I make the statement, and I, I'm paraphrasing. I don't remember exactly how I put it. But I say when I first started working with nice guys who were in relationship, I gave them a 50-50 chance of the relationship making it as for two reasons. One, as they started shifting their own patterns, it would rock the boat. And number two, because often the partners they, they've been attracted to and involved with had their own dysfunctional need to be in a relationship with the nice guy. So it could change on many levels. But in the book, I say, the more I worked with nice guys, I started saying, well, maybe it's more like 60-40. And I said, by the time I finished writing the book, I had it about 70-30, that probably about 70% of the relationships won't make it when a guy starts nice eye recovery. 
And, and today, I'm probably more at about 80-20. That, that maybe about 20% of the relationships will respond well to a man becoming more honest, becoming more integrated, setting the tone, making his needs a priority, being more clear, being more direct, um, not having good boundaries, not tolerating bad behavior. Uh, often relationships just cannot handle that change. And both people realize, hey, we got together for a bunch of toxic reasons. And now that we're blowing those toxic reasons out of the way, it, there's no real attraction anymore. There's no strong connection. But then I found that a lot of guys go out and I get emails all the time. They said, Dr. Glover, my divorce was, was hideous. It was terrible. It wiped me out, stressed me out. You know, took me a while to get over it, but I've been out dating and then, but, and I've met a great woman. We're a great match. She likes that I set the tone and lead. She likes my boundaries. She likes the way I live my life and, and we click. So the good news is, even if it rattles a relationship, it'll either make it stronger, let it grow in a healthy way, or if it blows it apart and you move on, okay, it opens the door to have healthier relationships where everybody involved is getting more of what they need and want. So we've talked a lot about the nice guy landscape. Let's talk about now what you refer to as the integrated man, which is, mm-hmm. which is let's, let's paint a very vivid picture as to what that looks like so that we know what to point to and what to aspire to. Okay. Well, let's first talk a little bit about what, what often creates a nice guy. And I, I think it's probably threefold, and there may be more to it than that, but just basically often, most of the nice guys I work with already have a fairly peaceful temperament. They're usually pretty easygoing guys. You know, they, they can tolerate a lot, and not a lot upset, upsets them. So that's often part of who they are already, is genetically, you know, how they popped out. But two more things that usually contribute to the nice guy syndrome, and, and I talk a lot in No More Mr. Nice Guy about the shame, the belief that I'm not okay, I'm not good enough just as I am. And so one of the things I say in the book is that pretty much everything nice guys do is man is to, to manage that sense of shame, of defectiveness, unlovableness, and not let people find that out, or them even have to see it in too bright of a light. And so I talk a lot in the book about how to, to start processing shame, to find safe people, to open up, to reveal yourself to, to, let, to find out that people can like you. Even if you're not perfect, that people can like you, warts and all. In fact, they'll probably like you better if you have some rough edges and, you, and you're not this cookie-cutter, Teflon kind of guy. Now, since I wrote the book in the last 15 years or so, I've begun to, to really see a lot that anxiety also enters in a lot for nice guys. And a lot of, every, and a, a lot of everything they do is about managing their anxiety. The anxiety of looking bad, looking foolish, being rejected someone being angry at them, um, them failing, whatever it may be. So to become an integrated male, I teach men, it really does begin with you have to be able to ask yourself, what do I want? What's important to me? You have to build support systems and practices <coughs> moving in that direction that you want to move. Because doing, I tell nice guys, you didn't get to be a nice guy on your own. You probably won't break free from it on your own. And one thing about nice guys and about men in general, as you mentioned, we tend to want to do it all ourselves. We want to figure it out in our head and then just try to go do it different. Why, but you why, know, why do we? You know, it may just be part of our DNA. It, it may be part of how we've been conditioned by culture to, to not look bad, to not make a mistake. I, I really do think the core energy of the masculine is about both freedom and about competence, it's about going out and doing things well. And so, for example, if we're in a relationship and our partner criticizes or nags us, that, that just cuts to the core of most men because it's basically saying, you're not competent, you're not good enough. And so I think we go out and we try to conquer, you know, whether it's building something, destroying something, resolving something, you know, slaying the beast, you know, killing the deer for dinner, so that then we have the freedom to kick back and enjoy, you know, a, a, a moment of, of of happiness and bliss in life. So I think part of the thing, because maybe it's wired into us that we should be competent, that we, we try to hide it when we feel less incompetent and try to figure it out in our head. But that figuring stuff out in our head that we men seem to all do rarely moves us forward. Because really the truth is, I think we move forward in, in a couple of ways. One is by revealing ourselves to safe people. 
and, and building again that sense that, oh, I'm not as bad as I think I am because these people still love me, or maybe I'm not even bad at all. And these people can like me, flaws and all, and they can support me and encourage me and want me to be my best. So I think that's a, a real important piece. And then I think we also have to have practices that help keep us on the track we want to be on, whether it's learning to set boundaries, whether it's pursuing our passions. We, we have to build support systems to keep adding new tools to our toolbox to, help, to keep us growing as men. And I'm, I expect we'll do this to the day we die. Why, why wouldn't we, to the day we die, keep using our practices and our support systems to keep evolving as human beings? So this integrated male is not about being a perfect guy, but it's about being a guy, I think, who's enough aware of, of where his shame pieces lie, where his anxiety pieces lie. He's learned to soothe himself. He's learned to release his shame. He's learned to take chances and take risks and be honest and be transparent and reveal himself. And he's learned to ask himself, what do I want? And to continually stay on that track of life, of, of honoring his wants and his needs and his desires and his passion. And again, I think that often takes uh, a lot of support to do it. I, I encourage men. I mean, you put out a, a podcast for that very same thing. It's, it's because if we try to do it alone, we're just going to keep using the same tools that got us exactly where we are in life right now. And we're not happy with exactly where we're at. Let's get some new tools. Let's get some resources to help us move us forward. Yeah, I yeah. love that. And, and yes, most yeah. of the men that I know that are struggling with this are absolutely in isolation. <laughs> yeah. We're all, yes. we're all isolated and struggling with this together, which is yeah. uh, ridiculous because in this day and age of connectedness, we should be able to connect. And- we, we, should, we should and we can. And that's really kind of my, my life goal is to build as many communities of connection as I can. I did most of my recovery work for my nice guy issues. I started out in a 12-step group, which was just liberating for me. For the first time in my life, I just started revealing me. All the stuff I kept secret. I grew up in a conservative Christian family. I'd been a minister. I had two degrees in religion. And I kind of, I kept everything about me secret. And I went to 12-step groups and just started revealing everything. It was liberating. And then I could just start, start doing that with my wife as well. I would just tell her stuff that I'd never told her before. And then I, later on, I joined uh, a men's group I was in for several years. It was led by a woman, actually, but she was very supportive of men and men you know, empowering themselves. And then I've led countless men's groups. At one time, before I, I, I closed my private practice, I was doing five men's groups a week. And it's one of the most powerful things about a men's group is that you get in there and you listen to other men's stories and you go, oh, I'm normal. Everybody else thinks like I do. Everybody else struggles like I do. Everybody else is afraid of a woman like I am. Everybody else you know, has these anxieties too. And we're all different, but we can all relate to those same patterns and to... And to to hear other men talk about it and, and say, well, I don't think he's bad or I don't think he's defective and he doesn't seem to think I am, it is so liberating to be able to walk out and have all your insecurities and all your imperfections and all your perceived flaws and still like yourself and still let people get close to you. You know, I, this has been an, an area of focus for me for a long time and something I'm personally passionate about to the point where it actually has become my unique purpose which is to help men sort of realign to that masculine core. Mm -hmm. And very briefly, my father, when I grew up, was just never around. He was a workaholic, so he wasn't physically there. And then later on in life, he revealed that he was gay. And so there was a piece where he wasn't really even emotionally available for me, and and Mm -hmm. there was a disconnectedness. I was, in a lot of ways, a typical young boy. I played sports. I, you know did well in certain classes, not as well in others, et cetera, et cetera. And so one of the things that's become very, very apparent to me in this whole idea of good little boys growing up to be nice guys is that there wasn't that strong male masculine father influence. Yeah. Maybe I missed it. Um, I didn't necessarily read your book cover to cover, but I, I went through the whole thing and I didn't see necessarily something about that father-son relationship. Is that... Does, does that play a big part? I'd be interested in your, your feedback. Yeah, that, it, that, I do talk about that in the book. And, and I, I recall probably early in my own process, I remember reading um, Iron John by Robert Bly. Yeah. And, that, and that, that, the book's really all about you know, re, re basically capturing your power from your mother and, and joining with the king. 
and the, rather than lining with the queen. I remember reading it and thinking, yeah, yeah, okay, okay, you know, and, and, and I, I didn't think I got a lot out of it. But then what was funny is that I went on, and years later, I was reading other stuff and doing my work and going to the therapy and writing my own book. And then I actually, a few years later, read Iron John again, maybe even after I'd finished my book. And I thought, oh, man, I get it. This is exactly what I'm talking about. And, and I realized that it probably had influenced me more than what I realized. And one of the things that stands out for me, and I haven't read it in years, Iron, Iron John, but one of the things that still stands out in my head is he, is he says, you know, we've, we've got to really get to know our dads and, and reclaim our dads. He said, none of our dads are either as bad or evil as we've made them out to be, or they're not as good or as saintly as we've made them. And until we really can get a clear view of our fathers and, and just accept them as flawed, imperfect human beings, we probably aren't going to move forward with our own masculine self. Because I was trying to be different from my father my entire life. And every, every way I, react, I interrelated with women was, I'll be different than the other men out there, i.e. different than my asshole father. And it's interesting that I went through a period of I didn't have contact with my dad for many years. And then I reached out to him just to say thank you, because I, I love baseball. And he taught me to play baseball and came to all my practices. And we spent hours out on the playground practicing and playing and, and said, thank you, Dad. I appreciate that. And it made my life, it's an important thing in my life. And he and I started communicating some. And, and I didn't live far from him. And, but I came to realize he's kind of a reclusive, scared, insecure man. And, and we'd get together about every six months or a year and have a cup of coffee and a donut. And he'd kind of tell me the same stories he told me the last time. And, and I just really came to realize this is the flawed human being that, that he is. And then I also got to know some relatives and some cousins of mine, a, a male cousin whose father was 20 years older than my dad. So my dad and his dad didn't even know each other. They didn't grow up in the same house. And then a female cousin whose mother is my dad's sister. And I spent time getting to know them. I didn't even know them until I was an adult. And they said, oh, yeah, their parents were extremely physically abusive, that our grandfather had been extremely physically abusive. And all of a sudden, it shifted the light on my father is that, yeah, he had some mood disorder, and he was critical and angry. But in many ways, I think he had risen quite a bit higher than his own father was. And when he died about six years ago, I spoke at his memorial, and I said it was liberating for me to realize he had a very flawed father. He was a flawed father, but perhaps he did it a little bit better than his dad. I was a flawed father, but maybe I did it better than him. And, I, and at that time, I could look at my son, who was about 25 at the time, with his daughter, and he's just an amazing dad. So, so maybe, maybe by learning to see our dads for who they are and, and let go of whatever our expectations or resentments or uh, even the ways we idealize them, I guess the word. And just come to see them as just flawed human beings that probably didn't have a lot of help, you know, to, to be a man, a lot of help to be a father or husband. And, and I'm not trying to let, you know, dads off the hook that were assholes or that were abusive. But even if they're assholes or abusive, there, there's something in their brain that it made sense to them to act in that way. And yeah. I'm not saying you have to have go have a, this close, tight relationship with your dad. But I think you do have to, like... Robert Bly says, take them off the pedestal or out of the ditch so that you don't have to be a reaction to your father, to where you can just be you and be grateful for whatever gifts that he gave you as a man. Yeah, I had a, uh, a wise person once tell me that the father's job for the son is to move the football down the field, to use a football analogy. Mm -hmm. And of course, he's trying to get it into the end zone, but... Um, that when you become a father, you pick up where he left off. And, and I think as yeah. you mentioned, there's part of that point, I think, in a man's life where he uh, has some maturity, he has some humility, often right around when he probably has his own family and he realizes, oh, I don't know what I'm doing either. <laughs> I <bet my> dad <laughs> yeah. know. And, you know, that, that humility kicks in and you go, gosh, yeah. he was just doing the best he could. And I'm very grateful, you know, when I grew up, I was resentful of my father, but once I matured and, and became a father myself and I realized, man, where he started from, he got the football way down the field, and I'm so grateful that I was able to pick it up and, and push it down and hopefully into the end zone. But as far as I can for my son, 
yeah, a, a lot of men have the opportunity to look at it through that prism and see that, yeah, we're all just, we're doing the best we can. And, and, and you know, even if our dad didn't do the best he could, because maybe, maybe they didn't, okay, but we can still come to just see them as a flawed human being. And because and, and, when we can let go of that baggage, it, it frees us up. And I know when my father died, he had a stroke. He died about two weeks after having the stroke. So I spent every day with him in the hospital, every day in hospice. He was in a hospital two blocks from my office. So I was there every day when he was in hospice. I took time off from work. And every day I just sat there. I'd kiss him on the cheek. He was, in, he was comatose. And I would say, thank you, Dad. Thank you for all the gifts that you've given me. And I was really at peace when he died. And that was such a blessing. And out of four kids in the family, I was the only one of the four kids who was willing to speak at his memorial. It was a small memorial, but my, my younger brother and my two sisters were still so bitter and angry at my father that they, they, they knew they had very little good to say about him. And I didn't praise him or put him on a pedestal. I just said, I'm grateful I came to see him as a flawed human being, and I'm at peace with that. And I really was. It was a good feeling have peace with that. And I think that's freed me up to walk the planet in my own way as a man without having to be a reaction to my dad or a reaction to quote all the bad men that I heard women complain about. And I can just be me and I can have my dark side and I can have my imperfections and I can observe them and watch them and hold them in front of me and say, yes, I have this light in me that is great. I, I can treat people well. I make the world a better place. And as one of my good friends told me this summer, he said, Robert, you can be an ass. And he said, you aren't an ass, but you can be an ass. And you need to be able to hold that up in front and look at it too and accept that about you. Otherwise, it will come out in really asshole kind of ways. Yeah, and so dealing, I think, with our dads allows us then to look clearly at ourselves and accept both our dark and our light side. Yeah, there's a, there's a saying in the personal development industry, I'm sure you're aware of it, what you resist persists. It does. And if you're hanging on to the, if you are holding him up on a pedestal and you are attached to that, that that can really uh, knock you off balance. Either you don't feel like you're never going to be good enough, mm -hmm. strive for perfection, which is obviously uh, unachievable, or you're constantly trying to push away, you know, that dark side. And we all we all deal with, you know, not being perfect. So yeah, that's a great point. I have found this to be central to, as I mentioned before, my purpose and. As I look through sort of the macro lens and then also in micro in my own personal experience, but I just feel like that whole lack of, I just feel that there is a, I believe that there is a lack of clear masculine energy in the world. And I think society is suffering. I think our communities are suffering. I think leadership in government and in business is suffering. I feel like, and maybe this is just me looking through this lens. But I feel like this could be attributed to almost every facet of the world right now in ways that are not working and that it's so desperately needed to have good, strong, integrated men who have a clear sense of purpose and passion and, and, and integrity to serve the greater good and not do it for greed or for, for tyrannical reasons. Do you have any examples that you can think of either in pop culture or maybe even in the past? that is well known that we can look to and say, now here's a man who is integrated, who, who lives from his heart, but he has a backbone too. Well, uh, two things come to mind just right off the top. I, I love the autobiography of Teddy Roosevelt. He, he was a man's man. And, uh, but I, I love that the way he lived with integrity, the way he, he challenged himself. I mean, I think if I could you know, go be like anybody out there, you know, Teddy Roosevelt would be one of my first ro role models. But you know what, what came to mind when you were talking, I, I remember reading an, an article after 9-11, and it was an article written by a woman, I think it was an op-ed piece in, in the New York Times. It basically said, I'm sorry and thank you. It was written by a woman, and she basically said, you know, I, I'm, a, I'm a feminist. I grew up a feminist. And I grew up with this idea that, you know, men and women are, are equal, but, but even that maybe men are bad, and I don't need a man, and I can do everything on my own. And she said, you know, I remember times I'd be on an airplane and I'd go to lift my, you know, carry-on baggage up above into the, the, the storage up above my seat and a man would try to help me and I'd, I'd feel dismissed by him and like he's being condescending and I'd tell him, I can do it myself and I'd do it myself. And, 
and as she was riding me, she says, I'm sorry. She said, I've heard a lot of men who were just trying to be good men. And that does happen a lot. And I've had you know, a lot of women tell me, I know I've contributed to men being more passive because when they've tried to be good men, I've, I've hurt them. And she said in this article after 9-11, she says, as I watched the rescue workers, the policemen, the firemen risk their lives, put themselves at great risk and be vulnerable to, to rush into the buildings, to carry people out, to, to, to do this with, with no concern about their own well-being. And I, I tear up when, when I think about it because it moved me. She said, thank you for that. She said, I'm glad we have strong, powerful men in this world who can make me feel safe. So that really stands out. I, and, and I really think maybe in some ways 9-11 was a turning point. Maybe, unfortunately, politicians have used it to keep fear in people and keep us in that fearful place. And we keep building up more and more weapons because they keep convincing us how dangerous the world is. But I think that was a big turnaround for a lot of men and women where women decided, you know what? I like the idea of having a strong man and strong men around me. And men came to realize, you know, there's a place in this planet for me to be strong, for me to make a difference, for me to be bold, and, and for me to take risks, and for me to be a hero when called upon. And, and I think for me, that stands out as an American, at least, as a transformational moment. And you know what? When, when, I start, when I first wrote the book, and you know, I do interviews with media and stuff, they'd ask me, well, do you see like a, a men's movement, a men's liberation movement like there's women's liberation? And I said, no, not really. I said, number one is the reason that women's liberation succeeded to the degree it did is that men enabled it to succeed. Male judges, male university presidents, male um, legislatures said, yeah, this is wrong. We need to change it. Men changed that allowed women to get equal pay and not be discriminated against. So it was men that actually made the women's movement succeed. And, and I would say about the only thing I could really see causing a men's movement is men and women banding together for men's rights after divorce in terms of visitation with children and not paying outrageous you know, child support to an ex who just spent the money on whatever. And because sometimes women will get involved, especially with their new husband, when they see the, the injustices there. But I said, I don't think that's ever going to be big enough for a men's movement. And quite honestly, now, I actually do think there is a, a very strong and building men's movement out there. There's not one single thing, but it's actually just about men seeking ways to feel more empowered in life. A lot of men come to me now because they want to learn how to date. They're terrified of women. Okay, they come to me to learn how to date, and I teach them how to be a more powerful, dynamic man. And if that, that helps them get dates, great. But if it also makes the world a better place, or helps them have better relationships down the road, or be a better father, great. It doesn't matter why they came to me, whether it's because they're going through a divorce, or they want to learn how to date. If I can teach men to live with integrity, to, to be differentiated, to be powerful, to be leaders, hey, we're making the world a better place, and, and it spreads because the internet can spread. It can spread a virus in any way. It can spread a, a virus like ISIS, or it can spread a virus in terms of men finding something that empowers them in a healthy way. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I, I, I'm glad that you, you continue to bring up the whole viewpoint of women because, again, the women that I talk to about this are just pleading for men to rise up and to be the men that they were born to be and the, to, to fill that vacuum and that often a lot of times women step into that controlling they do they force because there isn't a real man that they can trust exactly they have to i mean I, i've said that multiple times and peter when i talk with women about what i teach men i mean just if i'm on an airplane or in a coffee shop and just happen to you know chit chat women literally tell me can i come stand in your parking lot and meet these men when they come out of your groups or workshops i've had women say will you put up a website that has these men and a picture and a profile if they've been through your programs, because I want to date a man who is practicing what you say you're teaching men to do. It is women that are the biggest ally of strong men. My, my girlfriend now, I, I've been dating a Mexican woman for about eight months. She tells me, she, she only speaks Spanish, but she basically says, 
I don't want my huevos to be higher and larger than my man's huevos. I got huevos. I'm a tough chick, basically, she says. But she says, I don't want to have my huevos be so high that I'm bossing my man around and he's passive and afraid. She calls me jefe. She says, I love it when you tell me no. And because she's had to be in charge. She's a single mom living in a, in a chauvinistic country, and she's had to take charge of her life. And, and she just loves the fact that, that I will set the tone and lead, and she can trust that in me. And, and I do it with love. I, I don't do it from an egotistical, I'm going to get my way kind of place. And, and she just thrives on that. So I, I've seen countless women. In fact, every woman I've dated over the last 10 years has told me, basically, I love being the icing on your great cake. I love it that you have a direction, you know where you're going, and I love tagging along with that. Yeah, that's beautiful. That's really beautiful. The uh, example that comes to my mind when I think of an integrated man, I, I was trying to think of who best represents that to me, and the, the guy that came to mind to me was Hugh Grant. Hugh, Hugh Grant. Hugh Jackman. Um, yeah, yeah. Wolverine. Yeah, I was like, the Hugh Grant part where, where, where he was getting the blowjob from the hooker in his car on, on, in Hollywood. Or, oh, okay, Hugh Jackman. Yeah, <laughs> the yeah, other. sorry, sorry. <laughs> yeah, mis, uh, misplaced that one. Yeah, Hugh Jackman. I mean, it, you can be Wolverine on one hand and and a tap dancing musician in a musical on mm -hmm. the other. And to me, that that is the roundedness of uh, the full potential of the masculine. Sure. Strong enough to be vulnerable, strong enough to be present, strong enough to be in that moment, but also... When push comes to shove, you know the blades come out of the hand, and you can you can fuck shit up. <laughs> yeah, I, I I love that example, and I tell people I'm I'm a very peaceful guy. I'm, I'm you know I, I I walk the planet in a very peaceful way. But I tell people I'm in a place that if anybody fucks with anybody I love, they're going down. I, I mean I'm not a violent man, but I will go to the death. To, to protect the people I care about, and I didn't used to be that way. In fact, my ex-wife used to tell me, well. You know, I, I, how do I know you'll ever stand up for me if you can't even stand up to me? And and I've learned that with the women in my life, that is what they care about the most is that they feel safe with me. I've got a nine-year-old granddaughter, and she just loves being with me. Um, I think because I'm a lot like her father, and he's an ex-Marine and a very powerful but yet sensitive man. And And I know my granddaughter just feels amazingly safe with her dad, who's the custodial parent, and with me. And I've often thought, oh, man, she's going to have to have a really strong man if he's ever going to, you know, win her over. Because she's used to being around really strong, calm, peaceful, integrated, but very strong, fierce men. And a strong woman wants that. And as I've said, a lot of women say, where can I find that? I don't even know if that exists out there. Most women have two choices. The asshole jerk that sleeps with their best friend or steals their money or won't work. Or the nice guy that says, yes, dear, yes, dear, what do you want to do tonight, dear? Okay, dear, sure, dear. You know, and, and women don't really want either. No. Going back to the, the feminist movement, or at least the aggressive feminist movement, I think a lot of people think in terms of balance as the pendulum has to be swung. If the pendulum was way to the right, then balance is swinging the pendulum all the way to the left. But balance is bringing the pendulum to the middle. And I think that you have the asshole man on one side and then you have the, the passive, you know, impotent man on the, on the other side, but true balance is in the middle and, and having, you know, you mentioned the, the group of men in your granddaughter's life and how you begin to reclaim that sense of masculine balance in that young girl's life. Because when she grows up, she knows what that looks like and mm -hmm. what it feels like and what it sounds like. And so she'll be able to seek that out. And I think that's how we move that pendulum back to the middle, not, Back to our side, and it's all about men, but just back to the middle where we can appreciate both the masculine and the feminine dynamic. Or as you say, with every generation, we're going to move the ball further down the field in a more conscious way. And really, maybe the bottom line of all of this is consciousness, becoming more conscious, more aware, and conscious of, again, our, our own dark side and our own light side, and making conscious choices of how we're going to manifest both. And maybe every generation can keep changing that a little bit more. Well, you are definitely contributing a lot to that in our world. And again, I thank you for that. And if you would please just tell us one more time where any listeners can find you and find your book. Yeah, just go to drglover.com. It's just D-R-G-L-O-V-E-R.com. And you can actually order my book either as an ebook or order it online 
for, there's a link there. I talk about the nice guy syndrome. I have an online university where we teach self-help courses, dating, relationship, work, career, ADD, relaxation, a lot of good online courses. I've recorded probably over 200 podcasts of all kinds of different self-help topics. So just go to drglover.com and just poke around and uh, see if anything stands out for you. Fantastic. Well, thank you again, Dr. Glover. So appreciate your time, sniffles and all. <laughs> yeah, cough and all. So, Peter, I'm glad we went through with it. I'm glad we did it. And uh, I've had a great time with you, and I appreciate the work you're doing. And, and uh, yeah, let's just keep getting up every day and making the world a better place the way we walk the planet. And let's help other men do the same thing. Agreed. Thanks again. You're welcome. Take care.